Okay, if you guys have a Bible, we're in Acts chapter 6. There are Bibles as you walk in, just as you come in the door there on your left. You can turn your phones on or your iPads if you have a device. We're in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read in just a minute the first seven verses of the book of Acts chapter 6. Listen, last week we said that the message of the gospel could not be stopped. And in verses of 5 and 6 of Acts, you see that there's opposition to the gospel in three different ways. First, in Acts chapter 5, you see there's opposition to the church because of hypocrisy. And then, last week, you see that there's opposition to the church because of persecution from outside of the church. And this week, you're going to see that there's opposition to the church because of division and burnout within the church, within the ministries of the local church. And the Holy Spirit in Acts shows us that he comes to help the church oppose these three forces. He opposes hypocrisy by the discipline of the church. He opposes um, persecution by giving Christians boldness. And he opposes, as you're going to see this week, the burnout of the church with a creative new lay ministry structure where he comes alongside of us and he helps us be the church together. So, the message of the gospel cannot be stopped. That's the theme for the entire book of Acts. So, if you have your Bibles, let's read from Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Let's stand if you're able. God's word never returns void. Let's see how he works in you to change you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, Those are Greek-speaking Jews. By the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the Lord continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of these priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we read your word, and now as we prepare for your preached word, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would so massage our heart to open us up to our own areas of self-righteousness our own areas of idolatry that the gospel might sink deeper in and that you might remind us that we are clean and pure and have access to you not because of our own good merit or works but because of the merit of our Savior who loves us, who came to us in love, who took on flesh, four fleshly creatures such as we are, hemmed in by mountains of sin and you delivered us. Father, just as the clouds block the rising sun in the morning so often our sin blocks us hearing your word so lord would you work in us this morning to clear away the clouds 
and allow the warmth of your light to show us the way forward in repentance and faith. And brothers and sisters, those of you who can hear my voice, would you just pray and ask the Lord to quiet your heart and to prepare you for what he wants to do in you this morning. Father, we give you this time. We thank you for it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Moving in with friends is always very challenging. After my freshman year in college, we, I moved out of the dorm and we moved into a three-bedroom rent house with three other guys. And there were four of us that were going to cobble together our furniture and our bedside tables and do weird stuff that college guys shouldn't do, but our mothers make us, like put shelf lining in cabinets. And so we cobbled together this life of a, of a, of a house. It was awesome. I mean, we had like the, you know, we had the stadium couches. You know what I'm talking about? We put cinder blocks in the couches. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like a college staple. We had, it was awesome. And then a week before class started, we got a knock on our door and it was one of our buddies and it was his two roommates behind him. And he said, Hey, like our apartment just fell through and we don't have a place to live. And so we said to these guys, come on in. And so we became not just four in a three-bedroom house, but we all of a sudden were seven in a three-bedroom house. In five minutes, we had doubled in size. They came on in, and they brought what clothes they had, and it wasn't very long before we realized that, man, if this is going to work, we've got to, like, have some boundaries and talk it out. And so we had to have these family discussions where we came together and said, okay, look, there's three bedrooms, there's seven dudes we got to figure out how to do food. And we got to figure out who's going to sleep where. And we got to figure out how we're going to work the laundry because everybody knows you get seven dudes with toothpaste all over the counter and muddy clothes on the floor. It's not very long before the place begins to smell like seven dudes. So we worked it out. And in Acts chapter 2 and 4, what you find is that the church explodes in growth. And whenever a young church begins to grow, much like Trinity is, there's going to be family tensions. And therefore, there's going to be times at which the pressure of the demands of doing life together bubble up to the surface. And you see that come to a head in Acts chapter 6. And when you look at Acts chapter 6, you learn that even a church that can look relatively homogenous because we're all from Oklahoma— even the very subtle distinctions about our culture, denominational difference, ways we were raised, schools that we went to, education that we received, knowledge of the Bible or lack thereof, awareness of Christianity or just wondering what this whole thing is about and coming as long as we want, just to perceive and look and study and think about the nature of the gospel. It doesn't take very long before there are tensions. And in the midst of these tensions, Luke, the good doctor, shows that there are four marks of a vital church amidst the family tensions. And so I want to look at those four marks together. All right? Mark number one of a vital church that explodes in growth is word and deed ministry. Word and deed ministry. The situation in Acts chapter 6 was the, the problem came to a head over the treatment of widows. There are Hellenists and Hebrews. 
Those, that is to say, as I mentioned when I read the scripture, those are Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews. And what happened for many people who were Jews in that day in the ancient Near East is that a lot of them moved away from Jerusalem. They got out of Dodge. They spread out. They had farms and they started villages and they lived together for many, many years outside of the temple, outside of the presence of God's holy city. And then when they got older, it's kind of like some of us look at Florida and we're like, we're going to retire there. And they got all their money and they bought a house back in Jerusalem. And because the journey for many of these Greek-speaking families that may have lived for generations, though Jewish, outside of Jerusalem, they make this long, arduous journey back to Jerusalem. And when they do, it takes an incredible toll on their finances and it takes an incredible toll on them physically so that some of their husbands die, either on the way or soon after they're in town. And so Jerusalem was a city that was full of Jews, yes, but it was also full of Greek-speaking widows because their husbands had died in the long and difficult journey back to retire near the temple, near the Lord's presence, in his holy city. And as the gospel is being preached, many of these Jewish widows, these Greek-speaking Jewish widows came to faith, and they poured into the church and here, these 12 apostles are giving out food every day, the daily distribution, it says, of food. Every day, the church, not the state, is taking care of the needs of these widows. And they're pouring out. And some of these Greek-speaking Jews, because they don't speak Hebrew, they're getting left behind. And they're a full member of the covenant of faith, and they're getting ticked off. And they file a formal complaint. And so here you see these 12 apostles find themselves in the midst of word and deed ministry. What I mean by word ministry is I mean that the preaching and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central mark of the church, together with the sacraments, which you're going to experience in a little bit, and with the discipline of the church, the accountability that comes with those who profess the name of Christ together. But they weren't just interested in preaching alone. They were also interested in meeting the physical needs of the people. So much so that every day they gave and served these widows food. And so it obviously didn't take long amidst the early church, amidst the rapid expansion. It says, verse 1, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, it wouldn't take very long for a young church even for a church whose leaders had been with the resurrected Lord, they had been to seminary with Jesus, and even their church wasn't perfect. Oh, thank you. That's encouraging to me. Even they didn't have all the skill sets necessary to lead the church. Thank you. <laughs> and so what did they do? Well, they said, well, it's not good for us to neglect the preaching of the word. We're going to set up Good men who were very capable to provide the services for these widows so they could focus on them and they could help the church function much more efficiently. And so what happens whenever a church begins to do this? You find that in verse 1 it says that they summoned the people together and they said, we're going to find men who were called by the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and of the Spirit, who we will appoint to that duty. And the word that they give to these men it says the daily diakonia, the daily service. And so we're going to call together diakonoi. 
deacons, people who serve tables. It was just a Greek loan word that meant we're going to call a wait staff together. We're going to call people who serve tables in order to minister to the physical needs of our congregation. And so they did. And I want you to notice that we often think that the word deacon only appears when people are talking about service. But you know what? The exact same word is given to the elders too. Did you know that? In verse 4 it says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the diakonia of the word. So it's not a function of if you're going to serve, whether as those who preach the word and shepherd the congregation or those who are actually helping us meet physical needs. We're all waiters. We're all called to lives of service. But the church later said that it was these seven who show us the office of a deacon to be able to specifically and with great intention serve the needs of that congregation. They're the deacons. They're the ones who serve. And when you have leaders who understand the importance of setting up deacons, it leads to greater pastoral care in a church. Listen, it just makes obvious sense, and any secular management book would teach you this, that if you've got a lot of issues and a small number of people, you've got to delegate tasks. And so there are things that you know, even after being here for two and a half years, that you see in me, even though you thought, man, this is going to be great, he's just going to preach and the church is going to grow, there are skill sets I don't have. And there's only one of me. And there are skill sets that Will Parker, believe it or not, doesn't have. And there's only one of Will and of Mike Phelps and of Nathan Keltner. And as your elders, we want to be able to raise up and to help us call together very capable men. And we've done that with Harlan Van Wy and Ryan Carini and with Mike Burns to be deacons for us to help meet our physical needs. But listen, as you're going to see, this isn't just the deacon's problem. This isn't just their responsibility. It's the whole congregation. And it's a pastoral care that we can collectively give to each other by all working together to care. So whenever we need meals, Stacy Baker helps us organize the meals for the people who need meals at their house. It's amazing. When we need flowers delivered, she helps us get those flowers ordered. We spread out the love, if you will, so that we can all love each other well. Listen, some of you who are now widows or widowers, if your husband or your wife was here, do you know what they would say? If, if I could be so bold as to say, if, if Brenda Wingo or if Ed Covington were standing here, do you know what they would say? Take care of my best friend. Do you love them? Like, you are their family. Take care of them. And so, friends, just because we are one small church in the midst of many churches in Owasso, we have a weighty task to care for those who are in our congregation and to love them. And forgive us when we fall asleep at the wheel. Jerry, Jim, forgive me when we fall asleep at the wheel and don't love you as we should, as those who have a lot of needs. There are other families in our church. I could go on and on with stories where they need a lot of help right now. They first and foremost need prayer, but they need a lot of physical things too. Do you know about those families? 
Or do you just use them to fill a pew in your church so that you can say your church is growing? Listen, the church does not exist for you. The church exists for the glory of Jesus. And as we as a body of Christ begin to live together, it means we're intricately involved like a vine on a trellis. We grow together and we become the church, his body. It's beautiful. The first mark of a vital church according to Acts chapter 6, in the midst of rapid expansion, is word and deed ministry. And it leads to better pastoral care. The second mark of a church is that the leaders delegate. The apostles cannot do it all. They know their limits. They know their calling, and therefore they do not abandon that calling. And as tempting as it is, I feel this so much right now to do a thousand things I shouldn't do, they have got to learn to let balls drop because they are not their responsibility. They've got to stick with the preaching of the word and the shepherding of the people. And so they delegate. And they delegate to men called deacons. And the deacons then delegate to other people throughout the church to help who have special skill sets to be able to rise to the challenge. You remember in Exodus chapter 18, remember the story of Jethro and Moses. You know, like, if, men, if you're like me, you always get a little nervous when your father-in-law comes to your house because he's going to point out things you can do better. And so Jethro comes to visit Moses, remember? And Jethro sees Moses, like, working like a dog, probably not serving his daughter like he thinks that Moses ought to. And he sees Moses overseeing as judge all the people of Israel's problems, And Jethro wisely says to Moses, Moses, you are going to burn out. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. You're going to flame out unless you delegate. And so Moses delegates judges throughout the land, and they begin to oversee the problems of the people, and they begin to help meet the physical needs. Listen, when leaders delegate in a church, when we delegate to deacons, when we delegate to each other, you see that more physical needs are met because more physical needs can become apparent and made known. A lot of us feel very insecure about letting the deacons of our church know about the problems that we have. And you're like, I don't want to bother the deacons. I don't want to bother Pastor Blake or Mike or Will or Nathan. I don't want to bo- Listen, please bother us. Not because we can handle all the problems, but because by knowing all the problems, we're able to help men rise up to handle them. It is the chicken or the egg. We've got to be able to see the number of mercy needs in our congregation in order for us to be moved to then raise up more and more men, which we plan to do here very soon. In fact, this summer, we want to delegate more responsibility by raising up more men to be deacons in our church. And so, men, here you are, heads up, wake up, look out. If you're a man, if you have an X and a Y chromosome, and you're interested in serving the church, there's no better way to do that than by prayerfully considering coming to deacon training so that you can be raised up to possibly be a deacon. That will happen this summer, and you're going to hear more information about that. We want to be able to raise up men in order to serve the church. And I'm praying for three more deacons. That would give us six. That would double the number that we currently have, and it would be awesome. It says in the text, if you're there, look, it says that they appointed 
among them seven men. If you're wondering about the number seven, don't let it throw you off. The number seven in the ancient Near East was just a customary number that meant completion. It was very customary for there to be seven people overboards in the ancient Near East. Tacitus, when he wrote about Roman history, wrote about the seven emperors, not because there were just seven and he stopped, but because he wanted to say this is the complete history of Rome. When Josephus was ruling over Galilee, the great historian, he set up seven judges in each of the cities in Galilee over which he had authority. The number seven isn't a command, but if there's an extra guy out there who wants to help, we could have seven deacons, and that would be awesome. So the vital mark of the church is it has a word and deed ministry. Secondly, that the leaders delegate. They know their calling. They cannot do it all. And thirdly, leaders are chosen based upon the spirit, their spiritual maturity and not on popularity. They aren't chosen on the fact that they grew up in a Reformed church. They grew up as a Christian. They aren't they, because they're good-looking, because they're tall, dark, and handsome, because they're short and strong. They are chosen because of their spiritual maturity. It says that these men were filled with the Spirit and wisdom. And notice, it also interestingly, has men who are full of Greek-speaking names and Hebrew names in order to give a right um, representation of the congregation. So you've got Greek-speaking guys like Stephen, and you've got, you've got other guys who speak Hebrew who are able to come around the congregation. As we grow more diverse, one of our callings is to draw men in that represent the diversity of our own body. The power of being in the service of Christ's church is that it is our privilege and humbly calling to know each other well enough to know the needs of each other and also the subtle things that make us distinct and different. Listen, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church, would you, would you raise your hand? If you grew up in a Presbyterian church, okay, I see three of you. Like, people who come to Trinity for the first time say, okay, like, I'm not Presbyterian. Listen, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. I couldn't even spell Presbyterian until I was in seminary, and they made me. Nobody hears from a Presbyterian? It's okay. Most of us come from a non-denominational or a Baptist background because that's most of the churches in our area are that. Who would expect anything less? We find ourselves in a church that has Presbyterian in the name, which refers to the way our church is governed, but we don't care about that. What we care about, we care about the way our church is governed, but we don't care about the fact that we have a Presbyterian name of a church. We want the gospel to be central. And we just happen to think that the Presbyterian form of government is a beautiful protection of the people from the pastor and the pastor from the people. And it gives us a very healthy way to help us fulfill our calling as those who want to keep the gospel central in word and in deed. There are some of us who have college degrees. There are some of us who don't. There are some of us who have PhDs. There are some of us who don't even know what that means. It is okay. 
Because the one thing that marks us together, Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, is not the trappings, the clothes, the degrees, the distinctives, the skin color. It is the gospel. And it makes a diverse family one. And the world looks at that, and they see how they care for each other. And it becomes an apologetic in and of itself. Leaders lead by word and deed ministry. They delegate. They are chosen based upon spiritual maturity, not upon popularity. And fourthly and lastly, in a vital church, the problems of the church and the wisdom that the church is able to have will grow together. It should not surprise you that as we grow, there are more problems. But it also shouldn't surprise you that as the buyers and the McMinns and as Lauren and as new people join our church, so also grows our collective wisdom together. Who working together by the power of the Spirit were able to face the challenges of the problems. There'll be a day when we can't be in this gym any longer. Maybe it's because we outgrow it. Maybe it's because they redo the floor and we have to meet somewhere else on a Sunday. We need the collective wisdom of the people to help solve those problems. And we do it together. And when you begin to do that, you have a wider witness to the world. When you're able to have these marks of the church, your witness goes viral, if you will, because the whole body of Christ is involved. It is the congregation that ministers. Notice that they have a hand in choosing these seven men, just like you have a hand in choosing the elders and the deacons of the church. Men called by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by the congregation. It says, pick out from among you. The congregation has a voice in that. And when we have officer elections, everyone should run to be here so that you can partake in that. And then you elect men to represent you, called your elders, and men to lead you in service, called your deacons. And you need to trust them and get behind them and encourage them and help them to lead you the best that they can because it leads to a wider witness of the gospel. Notice at the very end, Luke throws this in and he says, verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of priests and disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. There were probably 18,000 priests in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people. And they worked two-week shifts throughout the course of the year. Remember John the Baptist? Remember his father, Zechariah, was on duty when the angel appeared to him and made him mute. He was on his two-week shift. And the priests here, we would love to think that they were the high priests, that they were the elite of society. The text just doesn't tell us who they were. More likely, they were just the priests in mass. And the regular old middle management priests heard what was being preached. They knew, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the temple. They knew that it all pointed to Jesus, and they believed. As the church becomes able to delegate, to bring people together, to be the body of Christ more and more, we have a wider witness to the community, and the priests are going to come, as it were. Because we believe that the good news of the gospel is that we are the nucleus of God's new Israel. That we are God's holy people called together, a holy nation, a nation of priests set apart to love and serve the world, as we say in our benediction every week. Are you willing to help? Are you open to be able to help us? Listen, 
Uh, let me just take a moment of pastoral privilege here just a second as we think about this text. If you come to church and you're not on setup duty, please do not feel one bit obligated to help. You should be able to come and feel free to leave whenever you need to. We don't want there to be a culture of guilt saying, oh my gosh, look at all that they do to set up. And so that you walk out of here like, I love that we heard the gospel. We got to do this, but now we feel bad we didn't help us set up. No, you're not on, leave, enjoy the day. It's a right and good and joyful thing. And then those who are here, who are with set up, see what a privilege it is who are on duty to set up that you get to help serve the tables of the people who come by sitting at the chairs and getting the sound equipment ready and getting the resources ready. People have got resources in their hands. You did that to prepare them well to come and meet with Jesus. And when you're on duty, serve gladly. And both sets of people need to be careful that they don't have a this is all for me righteousness or a hey, I dadgum did this. You should look at me and say thank you, righteousness. Both people have to be very careful that they know that they exist for the other. And hey, here's a heads up to those of you who are serving. You should serve as much as you're able for a season and take a break. Go at it hard. When you're on duty, commit. And man, let's do it together and make it fun and we'll do it as a community. But take a break as you're able. And those of you who haven't ever helped us set up or haven't helped with nursery, haven't served our kids, haven't helped, that's okay, but we want you to be able to help us. We need you as the church to be able to do that together because it's not the deacons who do all the serving. It's actually the deacons who organize the service. It's the congregation who ministers. Did you know that? They're the ones who minister. And the same goes for pastoral care. You know each other in some ways that I don't. That Mike and Will and Nathan as your elders don't. And you need to help us see those needs. And so when so-and-so is having a very difficult season of life, don't wait for the pastor to show up. Be the minister in their life. Go and help them, remind them of the gospel and give them hope. And we'll get there as soon as we can. The church ministers. Every one of us are ministers together. And so we need to commit, even as a young, growing church, to be that for each other. It's the mark of a vital church. Acts 6 shows us that the vital church has a word and deed ministry. The leaders delegate. The leaders are chosen based upon spiritual maturity, not based upon popularity. And fourthly, that as the problems grow in a church, so also the wisdom grows. And we grow together to be the hands and feet of our Lord. Francis Schaeffer, a pastor in our denomination many, many years ago, once wrote, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously and together. The orthodoxy of community and the orthodoxy of doctrine. The orthodoxy of community, the beauty of community, In the midst of the visible church, these two things were practiced in a community which the world could see was made known. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known, Schaefer writes, simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community, but exhibitions of the love of God. And I, I want you to know that if we become a church that's all head, that's all head and no heart, 
you're not smart, you're weird. And if you become a church that's got all torso and no neck, you're not cool, you're a Lego. We've got to be the church together. Romans 12 can't be any clearer. You all are the body of Christ. I need you as much as you need me. 1 Corinthians 12 cannot be any clearer. We are all the body of Christ. I need you as much as you need me. I need you. My family needs you. 1 Corinthians 14 could not be any clearer. You're all the body of Christ. When Paul is searching for a metaphor for what the church is, he says you're like a body. You're not a Lego. You're a body. And each person, some of us are shrouded behind the scenes and some of us are out front. We're all needed and we're all essential and intricate and important in this. The guys who are out in Grove, who meet every week to see a new church plant, they are just as crucial to this church as people who are here every week for worship. We're all a body. We're not a Lego. John Owen, a Puritan theologian, once said, and with this I'll close, we may love one another as our own soul, yet our love may not help the person ultimately. We may pity him in prison, but not relieve him. We may bemoan him in misery, but not help him. Suffer with him in trouble, but not ease his pain. We cannot love them into heaven, though it may be the greatest desire of our soul, but the love of Christ being the love of God, is effective and fruitful in producing all the good things which he wills for his beloved, his bride, his church. He loves life and grace and holiness into us. He loves us into covenant, into heaven. We are his body. We are his spirit. The divisions that exist among us need to be met with fierce repentance together, knowing that we are only centered around one thing, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not neighborhood you live in, not if you live in Owasso or Tulsa or Claremore or Collinsville or Skytook, not if you grew up in a particular denomination. What we're centered around is the gospel. The good news that the only way we can be this kind of church is if we are joined together with Christ who is our head. If we see that Jesus Christ came not to serve, as Mark says in Mark 10, 45, but to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Your Savior loves you. He calls you into an intimate relationship with himself. And at the same time, he draws you in into community at the same time. You cannot have the church, the, the God as a father, as the early church historian said, without first having the church as a mother. They go together. There are rare exceptions. Can we be that together? Looking to Christ who is our head, who wants us to live out the marks of the church with boldness in spite of the opposition to do so in faith. And just like we laid hands on Stacy and prayed for her to be a good mom, so also the Holy Spirit comes around you and says, look at your brothers and sisters. They are there for you. You remember the story of the man in the flood and the, You've heard the story, the man in the flood in the southeast where his house was flooded and so he got up on his desk and a boat came by and said, hey, we're here to take you. No, 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 God's gonna save me. And then he climbed up on his roof and then they came by again with a, a larger vessel and they said, dude, get in, get in. 
And they get said, no, 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 God's going to save me. And then he gets on the chimney, and a helicopter comes down on this flooded house. CNN's there. They're getting the whole thing, and this helicopter lowers. No, no, God's going to save me. And the guy drowns. And the story goes, he gets into heaven, and he looks at St. Peter, and he says, so, like, you said that you would save me, and you never did. And Peter says to him, dude, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. And in the same way, many of us in Owasso in the church, I don't mean to make light of it because it's a story, it's a joke, but many of us in the church view church like that. I need so much help. I need people to know me. I'm so lonely. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, he's given you his church, his body of Christ, to be your brothers and sisters together with you. You are not alone. Loneliness is one of the greatest travesties of our community. And he gives us the church together to show us the joy of being part of his body under Christ who is our head and who came to us in love. Do you believe that? Do you know the love of Jesus who loves you? His love for you is so far beyond the domains and range of your sin that you can never do anything to outrun that love. And he wants you to know that love by bringing you into community together. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we can be a young church just like you see in Acts 6 that's marked by strong word and deed ministry whose leaders delegate, whose leaders are chosen not based upon popularity but based upon spiritual maturity and who demonstrates the wisdom that you give us because as our problems grow, so also does our wisdom. Lord, we confess that all of this is for naught unless you, Lord Christ, are the one for whom, the one who empowers us, the one for whom we live by the power that you give us through your Holy Spirit. So, Father, help us to move towards service together by repentance. The way up is down. And help us to do so in faith, knowing that you care for us, that you've given us the church, and that you expect us in the context of community to walk in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.